The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. On October 6th, the U.S. Senate voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice Kavanaugh was sworn in on October 7th. This episode was taped while the confirmation process was still underway. Hi, I'm Allison Frankel, and this is On the Case. Mr. Shanmugam. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Maryland searched my client without a warrant in order to investigate crimes for which there was no suspicion. It is settled law that warrantless, suspicionless searches are presumptively unconstitutional. Amid the tumult of the confirmation process for U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, the justices of the Supreme Court put back on their robes and started to hear arguments on October 1st, the famous first Monday in October. Of the 35 or so cases on the Supreme Court's docket in the next few months, Canon Shanmugam will be arguing in four for clients ranging from service members who were victims of the USS coal bombing in Yemen to a debt-collecting law firm in a case involving fair foreclosure practices. Cannon, who is a partner at the Washington law firm of Williams & Connolly, has already argued 23 times before the Supreme Court, both as a private lawyer and when he served in the Justice Department. He has also seen the Supreme Court from a different perspective when he served as a law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia. We're going to talk today about what it's like to litigate in the highest court of the land. Good morning, Cannon. Good morning, Allison. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So it must have been a very interesting summer for you watching what's going on with um, the Supreme Court confirmation process. You're preparing for cases to be argued over the next few months. How do you deal with the fact that it's not clear who exactly is going to be on the court when you bring these cases before them. Well, Allison, as you're preparing for uh, uh, filing written briefs and then presenting oral argument in the Supreme Court, you always have at the back of your mind the question of who you're going to be arguing to. But really, I think you're primarily just focusing on the legal issues, trying to figure out what the strongest arguments are and the question of how you persuade individual justices is something of a subsidiary consideration. I think particularly as the oral argument gets closer, you start to focus a little bit more on that and to try to figure out how am I going to get to five votes. So that's a very real implication of there being a vacancy for some period of time on the court. And of course, we've been there before because there was an extended period of time when there were only eight justices after the death of uh, Justice Scalia. I've heard some Supreme Court litigators you know, talk very explicitly, I'm making this argument because I know it's going to appeal to Justice Anthony Kennedy when he was considered the swing vote, or going back in time, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when she was considered the pivotal vote between the conservative wing and the liberal wing. Is that the way you litigate? Is that the way you think Supreme Court advocates, uh, advocates should litigate? I think about it a little bit differently, Allison. I think that my goal in both the filing of the written briefs and at oral argument is to make the arguments that are going to appeal most broadly to as many justices as I can get. And, uh, you know, part of the reason that that's true is because I think it's actually a pretty rare case in the Supreme Court where going in, you think, boy, this is going to be a five to four case. Uh, of course, that's true in a lot of the 
higher profile cases that tend to grab the headlines. But in the more meat and potatoes cases before the Supreme Court, you often don't know going into the oral argument. And so, you know, you have to be prepared even in the course of an oral argument to shift strategy depending on the reactions of individual justices. And I think that's one reason why, you know, I try hard not to pander to individual justices when filing briefs in the court. Does it work, the pandering, or can it backfire? Like, if you if you fill up a brief with with citations to previous opinions written by a particular justice, you know, is that justice going to be like, oh, he's on my side? Or is the justice going to be like, oh, come on, you know, I, I can tell I can tell a snow job when I see it. Well, I always wonder how the other eight justices would react if they saw a brief <laughs> that just kept referring to uh, Kennedy J or, or back in the day, O'Connor J. And I think that's uh, yet another reason to be sensitive to that. And justices can surprise you with their reactions at oral argument. Um, You know, I had one case where going into the oral argument, I felt pretty confident that Justice Scalia was going to be on our side. And within about 30 seconds of the argument starting, it was quite clear that he was not. And you just adjust the strategy and, and move on. And you're always subconsciously thinking during the argument, you know, who are the the votes who I'm most likely either going to get or that it seems like I might have some chance of getting. You you mentioned um, briefing to get your cases reviewed at the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm not sure everyone understands that there are two phases of briefing. The the first phase is is when you petition the court for review, and the second phase is after the court has has agreed to hear your case. The petitioning process is a little different because you don't need five justices there. You need four. How does how does a four four court change your calculations when you're briefing a case that you are are hoping the court will agree to hear? So the thing about the Supreme Court that is um, relatively unusual is that it's a court that has discretion over which cases it hears, and so it can decide whether or not it even wants to hear a case, and the court exercises that discretion fairly sparingly. The court tends to grant review these days in about um, 60 to 70 cases, and they typically get about 7,000 requests a year. And so the odds of getting Supreme Court review are typically quite long. And so a lot of thought goes into those written briefs that are uh, submitted in support of a request for the court just to hear the case. And uh, as you say, the court's rules are a little bit different at that stage. You only have to get four votes rather than five for the court to agree to hear the case. Um, But that's still tough because the court has the luxury of uh, deciding to wait if it doesn't want to decide a particular issue in a particular case. And, um, And it is that much harder when you have to get four out of eight rather than four out of nine. Right. The odds literally are different. Yes. And also, I mean, there's the complication that if the court doesn't know if it's going to have nine members, it might just say, we don't want to take a case that we're going to end up deadlocked on and just let it lie and we'll come back to it when we have a full when we have a full bench. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, at the time we're recording this, it's uncertain when we might get a uh, ninth justice. But if there is an extended period of time uh, when we don't have a ninth justice, 
I think it may have an effect, not necessarily on how many cases the court agrees to hear, but on the type of cases it agrees to hear. Because I think one thing we learned from the period of time after Justice Scalia's death was that the court was trying really hard not to deadlock four to four. The problem when that happens is that uh, the court uh, doesn't issue opinions. It simply, uh, as I mentioned earlier, upholds the decision of the lower court. And uh, in doing that, uh, the court doesn't provide any guidance on the actual legal issue. And so that is something that I think uh, uh, all of the justices really strive to avoid. And one way to avoid that is to try to avoid cases where that is likely to happen. So I view the court, and I think most people who are not, who are not regularly at the court, as this kind of uh, mystical institution. Uh, there is a lot of mystique uh, around the Supreme Court, and uh, I, I think part of that is for good reason. It is a, a, a special institution. Uh, the courtroom is really a special place. You walk into it and you think, well, I'm in the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, there's no mistaking it. Um, but uh, working there, I think, is actually a, a, a very good way to kind of demystify the institution a little bit because as a law clerk, uh, you get to know the justices on a personal basis. And are you conferring, you know, daily with with your justice? Are, are you, you know, this is a total collaboration between clerks and justices every day? Yes. The way Justice Scalia ran his chambers was that uh, particularly after oral arguments, he would call all of his law clerks in uh, to talk about every single case. And so we would just have discussions about the case. We would talk about how he should vote and how he should kind of reason to whatever conclusion uh, 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 he would reach. And those discussions would often be pretty extensive and pretty broad ranging. And then uh, uh, he would vote. The way that the Supreme Court works is that the justices tend to vote about two or three days after the oral argument. But that's very much a preliminary vote. And there can be uh, changes of votes uh, after draft opinions start to circulate among the justices and all the way up until a point at which uh, the point at which the decision actually gets issued. And so we would have a lot of discussions with Justice Scalia. It, we would see him pretty much every day that he was in town. And particularly if, uh, as an individual law clerk, if you were working with the justice on an opinion, there would be a lot of back and forth. The law clerks have a lot of control over what cases get heard, right? I mean, they're, they're, how does the process of examining, you said 70,000 or so petitions for Supreme Court review? Yeah, 7,000. I'm sorry, so 7,000. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's but. not quite that bad, but it's quite a lot of paper, <laughs> uh, that's for sure. Uh, and I wouldn't say, Allison, that the law clerks have control, but they do have a, a substantial role and probably a more substantial role than they do in the actual decision-making on the cases that the court hears. Um, there is a, a process by which the justices effectively pool their law clerks so that a single law clerk can make a recommendation on a petition for review wow. to multiple justices. Um, but that recommendation is just a recommendation, and particularly if the case is evidently a close case, mm -hmm. the justices will reach their own conclusions on whether or not to grant review. I don't know that the law clerk's recommendation will carry, you know, particularly, certainly not dispositive weight, and, and in close cases, you know, arguably not even substantial weight. Um, and I, I just think that as a practical matter, 
there has to be some delegation of the sorting responsibility to law clerks because otherwise the mere process of reviewing the petitions would take up all of the justices' time. Yeah, but that's a lot of responsibility. It is a lot of responsibility. And I think as a law clerk, certainly when I was a law clerk, I felt that I had a real obligation to be a straight shooter when making those recommendations. You're making them to uh, 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 almost all of the justices. I think historically, typically there have been one or two justices who don't participate in the cert pool right now. I believe that there are two, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito, but all the others do. And so uh, I was very cognizant of the fact that I wasn't just making a recommendation to my boss, Justice Scalia. I was making a recommendation really to the to court. To the whole court. Yeah. Why, why do justices decline to participate? Why would Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch say, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my, my clerks out of this and I'm going to, I'm not going to listen to what what the pool clerk has to say necessarily. Uh, Allison, I think that ever since this pool was established, I want to say it was established in the 1970s, maybe slightly thereafter, there has been at least one justice who's not been in the pool. When I was clerking, that was Justice Stevens. And I think that the primary rationale is that it's good to have an independent check on this process, precisely Mm -hmm. so that Uh, One person doesn't have too much uh, uh, authority over the process. The argument has been made that perhaps law clerks and perhaps the whole court um, are somewhat risk averse and therefore the court takes fewer cases than it should. And for those of us who practice before the Supreme Court, we all obviously think the court should take more cases so we could have more, <laughs> more to do. Arguments. Yeah. yeah, no, I, you'll <laughs> never hear a lawyer, particularly in private practice, saying that the court is taking uh, too many cases. Uh, but I think, by and large, I think the system works pretty well. How do you become a Supreme Court litigator? This is this is a really small pool of, of lawyers who are able to do this uh, as, a, as a regular part of their practice. Do you have to start thinking and plotting when, you know, you're, when you're in your senior year of college, you know, what law school am I going to go to? What judge am I going to clerk? How, do you, how does one even know? You grew up in Kansas. Was Supreme, Court, was Supreme Court advocacy on your mind? Well, no is the short answer. And the slightly longer answer is that uh, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a lawyer when I was growing up. I thought I might want to be a journalist instead. And then I realized I couldn't possibly be as good at that. You as... definitely blew it. <laughs> well, I looked at people like you, Alice, and I just thought, I, I can't be that good. So I had to settle for a second best career option. But I, um, even when I was in law school, I was not at all one of these people who was sure that I wanted to be a Supreme Court litigator or an appellate litigator. In fact, I would say that the first time that I probably thought I wanted uh, uh, potentially to argue a case before the Supreme Court was when I was clerking for Judge Ludig, uh, a judge on the Court of Appeals in Virginia, and I actually attended my first Supreme Court argument. And as luck would have it, the case was actually argued by John Roberts, who was uh, uh, obviously not yet the Chief Justice, but who uh, happened to be arguing and was a very fine Supreme Court advocate in his day. And I remember coming out of that oral argument and thinking, gee, it'd be cool to argue a case before the Supreme Court one day. And I think particularly after serving as a law clerk at the Supreme Court, I I got a little bit of the bug of thinking that um, Supreme Court advocacy and appellate advocacy more generally might be something that I'd be interested in doing. But uh, uh, it takes a lot of lucky breaks to become a regular Supreme Court advocate. I think for me, the lucky break was 
being hired uh, into the Solicitor General's office, which is the office in the Justice Department that handles all of the government's litigation uh, in the Supreme Court. And I was uh, very lucky to be hired into that office at a relatively early age, as in that was how I, I came to uh, argue my first cases in the Supreme Court. You were how old when you argued? I was 32 years old, I believe, when I had my first Supreme Court argument. And and even by the Solicitor General's office standards, is that considered a pretty, a pretty callow youth? To- uh, at the time, I'm pretty sure I was the youngest person in the office, and I think that was probably a good thing because I think I was probably too young to appreciate just how nervous I should have been before that first argument. I was still plenty nervous, I can, I can assure you, but, um, but I think in many ways it was a good thing that I, I did that earlier in my career rather than later. I love the story you told me about, about your first argument. You, so you, you had it all prepared, you're standing up there, and everything kind of goes off the rails, right? Everything did go off the rails, <laughs> and uh, this oral argument, like pretty much all of them, is now online, so anyone who's interested can can go back and listen to the oral argument and, and hear me audibly squirm during the argument. But what basically happened was it was a case involving uh, the Fourth Amendment, and the question involved whether the police used excessive force when they were executing a, a, a search warrant, and it was pretty clear that the court was going to say that the police acted constitutionally. But um, Justice Souter, about a minute into my argument, started asking me questions about how the jury was instructed. This was a case where the person who had been searched was suing for damages. And so it was a case that actually went to a jury, unlike a lot of cases involving the Fourth Amendment. And that had not been the subject of any of the briefing. It really had very little to do with the question that was actually before the court, but I think that Justice Souter and a number of the other justices on the court were just kind of genuinely curious about what you tell juries about the law when they're trying to figure out whether a, a search is reasonable under the Constitution. And so I had a 10-minute oral argument, and I probably spent eight and a half minutes on this question, which was not in the briefs. Um, I wasn't entirely sure uh, uh, what the government's position on these issues was, but thankfully I had seen an earlier brief where in a footnote the government had addressed the issue, so I had at least some idea what the position of the United States, who I was representing, uh, was on all of this. But it was still kind of a, 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 a slightly traumatic experience because I came out of that oral <laughs> argument and just thought, what happened here? Uh, but it was a good learning experience in many ways because that happens sometimes as a lawyer. And it's a skill you have to develop to be able to think on your feet and to kind of go with the flow. And I've certainly had plenty of arguments since in you know courts at every level where the unexpected happens and you just have to be prepared to deal with that. Yeah, so is the takeaway from that I have to know everything, or is the takeaway it's okay in the in in the disastrous instance where I just don't know an answer to say, I don't know, Mr. Justice, I'll get back to you. Like, you know, what was your takeaway from that? I think the takeaway, Allison, is that you can never be prepared for 100% of the questions you're going to get. I think that the best that you can do in any argument, no matter how long you prepare, is to get to a point where you're prepared for, you know, 95% or 98% of the questions. And ideally, you are prepared enough and you've thought through the case enough that if you get one of those questions in the 2% or the 5%, 
you can say, well, I don't know the answer, or I'm not quite sure of the answer, but here's why that question doesn't matter. Hopefully you have a theory of the case where everything fits together, and so you can kind of explain, if you don't know the answer, why you don't know the answer, if that makes any sense. So what happened in, in the case? Well, we ended up winning the case unanimously. It was one of Chief Justice Rehnquist's last opinions before he passed away, and the court didn't say anything about the jury instruction issue. So <laughs> whatever curiosity they had was presumably satisfied. Is, is there a particular justice who is most likely to ask you the oddball question? The, the justices on the current court are, you know, all pretty active questioners with the exception of Justice Thomas. Um, and uh, the justices are, are pretty perceptive questioners and they ask questions that tend to be at the core of the case. Um, you know, there was a time when there were members of the court who would often ask just odd factual questions. Um, I know that there's a story, and I'm probably going to get the details of this wrong, involving you know, I think it was Justice Blackman um, who, you know, in a case that once involved uh, 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 some constitutional question, I think, involving beer, had questions about, you know, how the beer was made. And uh, <laughs> that, thankfully, doesn't happen quite as much uh, nowadays as it used to. Justice Breyer is famous for asking sometimes pretty convoluted hypotheticals. Is, is that something that, you know, you're kind of braced for when when you're standing up there? I, I think preparing for hypothetical questions is really important because I think the Supreme Court in particular is always thinking about what the implications are going to be for other cases or for future cases because they are, after all, setting the law nationwide for the entire country, for the entire range of cases. And so they're always thinking about that. And so really all of the justices ask hypothetical questions. I think Justice Breyer's may be slightly lengthier than the others, <laughs> but uh, I don't mind that so much during an argument. It's kind of nice sometimes to have the chance to take a, a little bit of a break and catch your breath. Justice Thomas is famous for almost never, with a couple of tiny exceptions, almost never asking questions during oral argument. You must know him from the context of, of your clerkship. What should we read into his silence during oral argument? Well, first of all, Allison, from the point of view of an oral advocate, I'm very grateful that Justice Thomas doesn't ask any questions because it's hard enough dealing with eight very talkative justices. <laughs> I can only imagine what it would be like with nine. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Justice Thomas has explained his relative reluctance to ask questions. He said that he really wants to hear from the lawyers. He feels that his colleagues uh, use up enough of the airtime as it is. And, uh, and that's really, I think, the primary rationale he's given for not asking questions. And I think that that is a very uh, respectable view. You know, there was a time when there were a number of members on the court uh, who did not ask questions, including, you know, a number of, of luminaries like Justice Brennan and others who, were, who asked questions only relatively rarely. And I think that that all really changed when my former boss, Justice Scalia, arrived at the Supreme Court. And I think every justice after him with the exception of Justice Thomas, has been very active at oral argument. I think a lot of people draw the wrong inference from Justice Thomas's silence. They, they infer that he's somehow not paying attention, which is plainly not true, or that he is uh, you know, somehow shy or retiring. It's interesting, Justice Scalia was so vivid a character on the bench, um, and I think the public you know, had a really strong sense of 
of him as a questioner because because he was so active in you know challenging arguments that he didn't like was he was he you know eminently prepared going in to you know to question people about to question advocates about their positions or was he kind of coming up with questions as the argument as the argument went on Justice Scalia would not spend a lot of time with his law clerks before the oral argument, but he was both brilliant and incredibly quick. He could get to the heart of a case just from having read the briefs once or twice. And and you would see that at oral argument, where even without having spent a lot of time with the clerks asking us to go research things or anything like that, he would be able to kind of cut right to the heart of the case. And I think that that just reflected you know, not just his horsepower, but his ability to kind of fit different areas of the law together and to always see the big picture. And it certainly helped that he had a very clear, coherent approach to judging and to jurisprudence. Um, But it was really remarkable to see. I mean, one of the great privileges of clerking for Justice Scalia was just seeing how his mind worked both at oral argument and in the process of writing. Uh, He really was uh, the best writer I've ever encountered, and his ability to come up with, you know, a, a clever or deft turn of phrase was really unparalleled. A lot of people compliment Justice Kagan nowadays for for having the ability to come up with a, a deft turn of phrase. She also seems to me to ask really insightful questions at oral argument. Do you have a sense of of whether her you know, her preparation is similar to Justice Scalia's where, you know, she's listening to arguments and kind of coming up with questions as they're going on? Or do you feel like she's preparing in advance to ask questions? My sense is that Justice Kagan um, prepares pretty substantially ahead of oral arguments and often asks questions that are, you know, very detailed as well as very incisive. And Uh, I have never failed to be impressed by how well-prepared she seems to be at oral argument. You know, I will say that on the subject of writing, I think we're blessed right now with a Supreme Court with a number of justices who are very clear, very um, powerful writers. And um, and, and that's that's not always been true, but I think that it's definitely true now. I want I want to pick up on a point that you made earlier about um, and that we both made earlier that this the bar is very is very small the the lawyers who who make the bulk of presentations at the Supreme Court is a handful um, and even even a lot of the the extraordinarily smart people that that you clerked with or who who were clerking for other justices at the time are not in that handful. I mean, we're talking about how many how many lawyers would you say are are considered to be part of the Supreme Court bar, the core Supreme Court bar? I think in terms of lawyers who practice regularly before the Supreme Court in the private sector as opposed to in the government, yeah. it's probably not more than 15 or 20 people. And frankly, you know, if you're talking about the people who you know, are in the Supreme Court every year, it may even be a smaller number than that. And so it is a very small group. And I think that there are, uh, uh, you know, sort of good reasons why it's a relatively small group. It is 
a specialized skill. Uh, when I'm not arguing in the Supreme Court, I argue in courts of appeals across the country. And I would say that even between the Supreme Court and courts of appeals, there are pretty significant differences in terms of how you, you brief cases and how you argue cases. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that it, it, it is a specialized skill. Um, the Supreme Court bar is just a little bit different in that it's an expertise about a court rather than a particular area of the law. Yeah, exactly. So like the, the cases you're arguing this term run a gamut of legal issues. And the only thing that they have in common is that is that you have to appeal to eight or nine, depending on what the composition of the court is. Th that's sort of the only thing they have in common. Yes, and, and a lot has been written on this subject. And I think on the upside, there is a lot of value to having a, a lawyer who's a repeat player before the Supreme Court, because hopefully those of us who practice there regularly have something of a store of credibility with the justices. Mm -hmm. They know who, who we are. We know the justices mm -hmm. uh, uh, quite well, um, at least on a, a professional basis. I do think that the downside is that it's very hard to kind of break into this corner of the bar, and it's hard to get that first argument before the Supreme Court, because when the client has a choice between somebody who has 20 or 30 or 40 arguments and someone who's never done it before, the risk-averse option is to choose the person who's done it more often. There are not a lot of women in that group. Um, is that a problem? Is, 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 there, um, is there some sort of systemic barrier to diversity in the Supreme Court bar? Uh, it's not a very diverse group, um, either in terms of women or in terms of persons of color. Uh, I think that the Supreme Court bar, um, uh, as it currently stands, is, is dominated by white men. And I don't have a good explanation for why that is. I do think that when you're looking at the Supreme Court bar, you're looking at people who typically have clerked often at the Supreme Court, who have gone to elite law firms, who have served in the Solicitor General's office. And I think that there are a lot of stages along the way at which um, uh, uh, people make decisions about what they want to do and decisions are made about hiring. And I think that the Supreme Court bar is kind of at the tip of that iceberg. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if you're uh, concerned about the diversity of the Supreme Court bar. I think you have to look at all of those stages in order to assess whether uh, it's something about the Supreme Court bar or it's something that takes place at kind of an earlier stage. Is it something that clients ought to be conscious of? I, are, when, when you go to these beauty contests, for want of a better word, with other Supreme Court practitioners, are you, are you seeing people of color? Are you seeing women? in in the room who are getting an opportunity to pitch to to corporate clients? I mean, the answer is yes. There are a number of really terrific um, female Supreme Court advocates. There are a number of uh, uh, terrific Supreme Court advocates uh, 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 of color, Miguel Estrada and many others. And, um, and, and you do often see them. I think what makes this a little bit different from the issue of diversity in the legal profession more generally is that you know, when clients are hiring a Supreme Court advocate, a person to present the oral argument in the Supreme Court, they're hiring only one person. And I actually, and so it's a sample size of one. And even if you're one of the largest companies out there, 
you're not going to be in the Supreme Court all that often, maybe once every few years. And so I think that the decision about who to hire ultimately really turns on personal fit um, more than anything else. And uh, I have never felt that I was hired for a Supreme Court case uh, uh, either solely or even primarily because I'm a person of color. I think typically when I'm hired, I feel that it is because I either have some expertise in the particular area of the law or uh, just have a good personal relationship with the general counsel or whoever's making the decision, or our law firm has a relationship with that person. And so it's such a small sample size that I think it makes it hard to analyze these decisions in the aggregate. And I'm not offering that as a, a justification for why things are the way that they are. I just think that that's the most likely explanation. I mean, I do think that I'm optimistic that the profile of the Supreme Court bar is going to change. You know, I look out over my practice at Williams and Connolly and the lawyers, the younger lawyers who I work with uh, uh, most often, and a majority of them are women. Um, we have a number of uh, uh, persons of color, and I feel as if uh, when I look at the younger ranks, um, there is diversity there. It may just be that it's going to take a little while longer, and I realize that there are those who who wish that it would happen more quickly. But I think I, I have a high degree of confidence that um, the Supreme Court bar will look more diverse in 10 or 15 years. What's the morning like? You wake up on the day of an argument. You know, my mornings of Supreme Court arguments actually look more or less like every morning. The one thing I'll do on the morning of an argument is I will typically run through my opening, which is rarely more than a few sentences uh, a couple of times, and perhaps uh, 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 talk to myself a little bit and practice answering the questions that I think are most likely to come up, just as a way of getting into the groove. But it's pretty rare that I'm in cramming. The Where are you doing this? I typically do it in a conference room, and I think my partners now know that if I'm standing in a conference room talking to myself, it's not because I've gone crazy. <laughs> it's because I'm preparing for an argument. But I really like to do that because uh, public speaking is not something that ever came naturally to me. I was not one of these people who was a college debater or who did that sort of thing growing up. And so uh, it takes practice. And for me, the best way to get ready for an oral argument is to practice actually talking, since that's, after all, what an oral argument involves. And so I'll, I'll do a little bit of that on the morning of the argument, but there's no cramming that takes place. It's not as if I'm feverishly reading cases on the morning of an argument, and if no, anything. No lucky suit, no uh, no superstitions. No real superstitions. I wear um, the same tie that I've worn for every oral argument, which is also the tie that I uh, wore to our wedding. So I guess by definition, That's it's a superstition. It's a, it's a lucky tie. <laughs> um, but beyond that, uh, you know, I don't, uh, 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 you know, rub the the toe of the John Marshall statue at the Supreme Court or anything like that. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty uh, unsuperstitious, I think. Can you tell from argument how things have gone? I'm the worst at being able to predict the outcomes from argument because uh, I think I always come out of oral argument with some hope that we're going to win, even when it, it looks like an uphill fight. And I think it's actually hard to kind of have a perspective on what's taken place when you're doing the argument. You're just so focused on 
getting the answers out and addressing the justices' concerns that, you know, you don't really have the opportunity to engage in nose counting. So I really rely on my colleagues and friends, and, and my wife likes to come to my arguments. And so if she's there, I'll often just ask her what she thinks is going to happen. And she's not a lawyer, but she's a much better predictor of the outcomes than I am. Has the has the rooting section ever been dead wrong? Were you ever just absolutely shocked by the outcome? I think that there are cases where the outcome is surprising. Not many. I think, quite frankly, by the time you get through an hour-long argument at the Supreme Court, you have a, a pretty rough sense of at least how the case is going to go, if not how individual justices are going to vote. Um, but, you know, just last year I had an oral argument where uh, there was one justice who was particularly hostile, and I came out of the oral argument thinking there's no way I'm going to get that justice, and that justice voted for our position. So it does happen. And so uh, as a lawyer representing clients, part of my job is to just remind clients that uh, we can make predictions, but it's like predicting the weather in the Midwest. There's about a 50 percent chance you're going to get it wrong. We say that in the Northeast, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last question, big picture. The court has been taking a lot less cases, it feels like, over, I think if you look over the last decade, it has just been a steady, a steady decline. Why do you think that is? Are, is the court ducking the toughest social questions? What, what accounts for this, for this, you know, narrowing of the court's docket? Allison, I don't think that the court is avoiding hard cases or big cases, because goodness knows the court has had plenty of big cases over the last few years. But I think that there is a noticeable decline in the number of cases. It's gone from around 80 to, I think, 59 last year, which was really a historic low. And I think that there are probably a number of things that contribute to that. One of them is that Congress just isn't passing many laws nowadays, and most of what the Supreme Court does is to interpret laws that Congress has passed. And if they're not passing big legislation, there's less of that for the Supreme Court to do. Uh, I think that the lower courts have gotten better at avoiding creating conflict. And, and without a circuit conflict or split, it's pretty hard to get Supreme Court review. But it is, uh, you know, I think a bit of a problem that the court is hearing so few cases because there are a lot of issues out there on which lower courts need guidance. And I think that the Supreme Court, in my view, certainly has the capacity to hear a larger number of cases and to decide a larger number of cases without any effect on its decision making. Yeah. Well, uh, I think a, a, an 8-8 court is going to be another holding pattern. So we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll a 4-4 court. Oh, I'm sorry, 4-4 <laughs> court. An eight-member court, a 4-4 court. Yeah, is it, we're going to see another year of, of um, you know, avoiding, uh, avoiding these, uh, these heavily conflicted cases. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I'm cert certainly hopeful that we'll have a full complement of justices and have that sooner rather than later. The court has shown that it can function with eight justices, but I think all else being equal, the court is at equilibrium when it has its full complement of justices, and it makes the work of the court uh, go much more smoothly. So again, I'm hopeful that we'll have uh, a ninth justice uh, relatively soon. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much, Cannon. What a pleasure to speak to you. It's my pleasure, Allison. Thanks. On the Case is a podcast by Reuters. If you'd like to hear more, visit Reuters.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Frankel.